1: I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, Otiel Burbridge, The Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey guys, you're listening to Inside the Musician's Brain. Welcome back. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the Infamous String Dusters, and we are coming at you today with episode five. Got a lot of good stuff lined up today. I'm going to field a bunch of String Duster related questions. I saw a lot of questions about the songwriting process, as well as the recording process, and also arranging songs for the live show. So I'm going to kind of look at the arc of a song. From inception through arrangement, the recording studio, and then how those songs make their way into the performance and in some cases even get rearranged for the show. And if you guys want to be a part of the conversation and submit questions, you can check out String Duster's social media Facebook and Instagram, or you can check out my social media as well. I'm Trad Plus on Instagram, I'm easy to find. And I would love to know what you guys are interested in. I'm going to hit as many of those topics as I possibly can here in the podcast intro. So drop me a line and let me know what's up. And then when we get through all that String Duster stuff today, I'm going to roll part one of a really interesting interview I did recently here in Denver with my good friend Bill Nurshey from the String Cheese Incident. Those guys are just wrapping up their 25th year as a band, which is incredible. They've been a huge inspiration to everyone around our music world. And Billy let me in on a lot of the inner workings of cheese and it's just a lot of juicy stuff. So we'll have part one today. We'll roll part two later in the season. Real quick, before we get into all this good stuff, I want to mention that Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. And there's just a ton of great stuff over there at Osiris. Great podcast, great hosts. Make sure you guys check that out. Okay, so I dug into the social media mailbox for this episode because the last few episodes I got into the bluegrass history thing and then I was talking about what the night brings, which is a very timely subject and also very relevant to everything that we've been talking about so far. But today we're going to get really heady on the Stringdusters songcraft and we're going to look at how each song has a unique journey from inception all the way to the live show, and how we all work together to make that process happen. So for the Stringdusters, most songs are born as we're getting ready to make a new album. Yeah, there are certain instances where songs come online between albums, but when it's time to record, we need a bunch of new songs, and we need our best stuff for our new record. So time has passed since we last hit the studio and guys are writing songs because that's what we do. Now, most of that writing process starts on an individual basis. So we're all working on things individually. Now, in certain cases, we collaborate from very early on in that process and actually later on in the intro i'm going to give you a little sort of demo of how the song planets went from a seed of an idea that i had and then i handed it off to travis he tweaked some chords added the lyrics we arranged it as a band recorded it and then rearranged it and added a whole jam section at the end when it came into the live show so we'll get to that demo in a second but The songwriting process mostly starts on an individual basis. So guys are writing songs and we're starting to dial things in as we look ahead to making a new album. And typically we'll start sending ideas to each other over email so we can begin familiarizing ourselves with each other's material. And then ultimately we get together for what we call pre-production. We rent a house somewhere, we seclude ourselves, no gigs, and we just focus really deeply on the music. And in the first phase of pre-production, we're sort of showing things to each other and coming up with basic arrangements of them, not getting too deep into the instrumental parts or reworking the songs. We're just trying to kind of get a handle on how it would sound as a string duster song. And that's sort of taking us to the next step where we're going to pick which songs are actually going to go on the album. And this used to be a more arduous process for us And part of that is because we have so many writers in the band. But, you know, one cool thing that the Dusters have figured out is we share all of our songwriting credits. And that philosophy is really born of the idea that being in a band, it takes so many different things to make it go. Why should the songwriting process be weighted disproportionately from a financial standpoint to all these other really important things that make... The business grow and make the music come alive. So it was great. I think once we started sharing songwriting credits, that competition factor around, oh man, I need to get my song on the album, kind of went away and allowed us to really focus on what's the best music. And as we go through this part of the process, we're trying to get our heads around not only what are the best songs but what group of songs will work best together to comprise an album. Now some bands come into this process with like 30 songs and cut it down to 10. For us we usually have a handful to spare but not too many. Of course everyone brings their A game material and you know it's usually it is tough to cut the songs that aren't going to make the record and they usually see some sort of life in the live show but We work the songs up enough so that we can make basic recordings of them and then say, okay, these are the ones that we want to record. So then we've got a focused batch of songs. Then we're going to actually get deep into the arrangement process. And this is one of the most fun and rewarding parts of being in a band. For me, this is where the art and the vision come to life. And again, we go for a pre-production session. Usually we rent a house somewhere, we spend anywhere between two and four days, and we take the songs and we just really give them a lot of time. And a lot of what's going on during this phase of things is guys are figuring out, how can I create an instrumental part on my instrument that will serve this song best? And how will it work with everything else that's going on to bring this song To life in a meaningful way and sometimes it's more of a bluegrass treatment and then sometimes it's not a bluegrass treatment at all but you know this is where like I say the vision of the band really gets executed and we hone these songs in to the point that we have them basically ready to record and in the past we would play songs live that would later end up on an album but with recent albums We've kept everything under wraps until the album actually comes out and we've loved doing that because we just noticed that it builds all this excitement leading into a new tour, new album comes out, and with our type of fans who come to a bunch of shows every year, there's this great incentive to come out and see all this new music, and boom, it all hits the show all at one point, sort of infusion of energy and new material, and it's really cool, really invigorating, and you can see it reflected in the shows, and you know it's one of the best reasons to put an album out there's a lot of debate about our albums a valuable thing anymore so many artists just do singles but we're real believers in the album and I would say that that is first and foremost an artistic thing for all those reasons I just mentioned it's what moves the music forward and I love that and I'm always excited when we have a new album drop and here we come for these live shows with all these new tunes and it's like let's see where this takes us. And it's an exciting moment on the tour. It really freshens things up. But of course, before all that goes down, we need to actually make the album. So we've got the songs, we head into the studio, and the process there has become a lot simpler for us over the years. We're really looking for live takes. You know, we're trying to capitalize on the experience that we have together playing as a band. We're not trying to polish things too much. We're just looking for that live energy of the instruments and the voices all working together to present that song with as much feeling as we possibly can. So we'll play a song, sometimes it's two times, sometimes it's five or six, and we spend time in the control room at the studio trying to decide which is the most compelling take. Once we've got that picked, we'll go in and make fixes to little instrumental things if need be, and then we'll go in and add the lead vocals and the harmonies after the fact. So then we've got our songs recorded, and then we got to sequence the record, put the songs in order as they will appear on the album. And for Rise Sun, we actually did an interesting thing where we sequenced the record before we even went into to record. So we Took every song, wrote it down on a note card with kind of the key and the vibe, and then shuffled things around and ultimately laid them out in what we thought was the most compelling sequence, and that was it. The album was done. That's kind of the recording process in a nutshell. So then we've got the album coming out. Then it's time to start thinking about how these songs will come alive at the show. So some songs on the record, like for example, Coming Again, that's got a jam section in it where... Andy gets to take off on the dobro, and we sort of follow him until he wraps up whatever he's got to say, at which point he cues us, and then we use our little device there, which is actually a singing part that comes in, and that's leading us to the end of the song now, other songs like wake the dead for example we recorded it one way but we started experimenting with it live and found out that it was a great candidate for a jam section at the end and again it would be an open-ended section and we would sort of follow each other falco kind of starts that off and then hands it off to the banjo in a pretty organic way and then i cue the end instrumental riff that wraps up the song so Every song's got its own version of that. Some don't change very much at all, like Rise Sun, for example. We pretty much play it like it is on the record, but they all get their own treatment, and we're able to figure out through experimentation which ones will sound good with some extended improvisation or which ones are kind of better left untouched and, again, are represented as they are on the album now to bring all that home and kind of give it a little context i thought i'd bust out a quick demo here of the song planets which of course went through all these phases before it made its way into the live show and this one actually started out with this simple riff on the banjo where i'm kind of mimicking the sound of like an electric guitar So I handed that little musical figure off to Travis. He adapted that with a melody part and some lyrics, and that would become the verse when he was writing the song. And then in our band arrangement session, Andy Hall added a melody on the dobro, and that would become the intro and the verse to the studio version. And once we had that recorded version if you listen to the album it sort of goes into this spacey section at the end and we really dug that but it didn't necessarily have a proper ending so what we did was to adapt it to the live show we would kind of go into this airy textural thing and then ultimately transition into another song but we really felt like it needed one more layer of thought and it was Andy Hall actually who suggested that we add the Ruben and Charisse jam that the Jerry Garcia band used to do, and it was a perfect fit. And if you listen to the new live release, Live in Covington, Great Example, you can hear us kind of ease our way into Ruben and Charisse. Ruben and Cherise jam starts to get really big. We kind of move away from the melody while still playing the chord changes. And then that melody comes back and we cue a big release down to a D chord and you kind of hear everything just chill out and settle down. And it's at that point after everything chills out that we make our way on to the next song. And that's how the live version of Planets came to be, from a simple seed of an idea, a little riff on the banjo, through the songwriting process, into recording, and then a whole other layer of arrangement for the live performance. So a lot goes into every song, all these different phases of creation, and like everything we do, we're always trying to refine these different techniques and just find the best possible ways to bring new music to life. Okay, that's going to do it for the heady, analytical, string duster section of episode five of the podcast, and now I want to get on to my interview with the amazing Billy Nurshey. I love this guy. I've had so many chances to make music with him, most notably back in the Emmett Nurshey band days. He, of course, is a founding member of the String Cheese Incident. He's a great guitar player, great singer, great songwriter with so many interesting things to say about music. Life on the road and everything that's made cheese go over the years. So here we go, Billy Nershee. As I
0: ramble around on the outskirts of town, visions from the past fill my mind.
1: Alright, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and I'm so excited about our guest today. This guy is a jamgrass legend. He's the guitar player and one of the singers with the String Cheese Incident, and also a guy who I've been really lucky to collaborate and hang with many times over the years, Billy Nurshey. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, man. Hondo, can I call you Hondo? You certainly can. All right. For a little context, Hondo is my nickname from our Emmett Nurshey band days. Yep, a gl- from... From the
0: Halloween, that's right. You at, the, at the Boulder Theater, a cowboy outfit on that's with right. the littlest cowboy hat I've ever seen. That's right. Billy <laughs> Nurse, you wouldn't
1: take no for an answer that night. No, if you that's catch right. my drift. Um, thanks for doing this, man. Really been yeah. li- looking forward to this, and uh, I want to kind of start out by talking about the roots and origins of cheese. In the first few episodes of the podcast, I've definitely covered the history of bluegrass and the progression from traditional music through kind of the the 70s, second generation guys, and then newgrass revival. And then we come to the 90s and Cheese comes around. And there was very little precedent for what you guys ended up doing. You know, there, there weren't that many bands playing bluegrass related music and clubs selling hard tickets with this vision that it could be scaled up. So I'm wondering when you guys got rolling, who who were your influences? You know, who were the bands that you were looking at both musically and also in a business sense saying, "Oh wow, you know, this this thing that hasn't necessarily been done before could possibly be be done and be done even on a on a bigger scale." Who were, who were your early influences in those capacities?
0: Well, um er- Right when we were meeting in Crested Butte, you know, where uh, I had known Keith from various uh, seeing him at various bluegrass festivals, Telluride, uh, Rocky Grass and Lions and um, other festivals. And we had uh, done a little picking and talking. And, uh, you know, he was in Crested Butte. I was in Telluride. uh I met Mike Kang in Crested Butte and he was uh, influenced by, he liked bluegrass and and he uh, also played jazz and different things. He was mainly a uh, fiddle player at that point, played some mandolin also uh, for sure, and a little bit of guitar. When we started playing music as a four-piece, uh, I think that we some of our a lot of our influences were say Telluride Bluegrass Festival if you go to a, a full weekend of Telluride Bluegrass Festival you're apt to see a lot of different kinds of music not just bluegrass um there'll be some uh jazz and there'll be some rock and there'll be uh these different different styles of music being played you know some of the bands that stood out were any chance we got to see Newgrass revival that was a a big thing, oh, yeah, you know because the musicianship was at such a high caliber they were playing on on with bluegrass instrumentation, but they were playing compositions that were you know bluegrass and the fringes of bluegrass and beyond um we also uh would really enjoyed watching the Grisman Quintet oh yeah play you know because same thing they they would play some bluegrass but they would also play a lot of Latin Brazilian lots of uh, these other styles and it's like well that's cool you know these guys not only are they great players but they choose some really interesting compositions for sure because um you know I'm a bluegrass lover and uh But at the same time, it's nice to pepper in some different styles to keep the ears perked up and keep uh, keep it interesting. Yeah, yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, Bluegrass, especially if you look at what's going on today, I think is a result of the evolution of the music and the mixing in of all those different styles and the different directions that Bluegrass has gone is a result of that. And you guys are such a huge influential... Piece of that whole progression, um, and it's interesting you mentioned New Grass Revival because they're such an incredible band musically. There was nothing like them before they came around, but even New Grass never really had a lot of traction, like touring. And I've talked to Baylo about the fact that it it wasn't necessarily that easy to sell tickets and sell tickets in clubs because fans just weren't aware that this thing was going on they weren't necessarily looking for it but you guys you know salmon formed i think like in 1989 and you guys were just a few years after that but that apparently didn't stop you 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 sort of jumped right into that abyss and said you know we're going to play this music but we're going to take it out on the road and play shows even though no one had ever really done that before
0: i think when we when we first started playing music we were not thinking at all about how are we going to have commercial success right. we were just thinking about what's the coolest music that we've heard or can create that will you know will, will make us feel like like uh, we're doing something that, that we like, we enjoy um, and uh, we weren't Saying you know well, what do the people wanna hear you know what what what's gonna what's gonna work if we tour and how you know we were thinking in two separate ways we were thinking about um what kind of music do we play, what's interesting to different people in the band? Let's learn it and play it as mm-hmm. well as we can and then we we were thinking in another part of our brain. This is inside our br- inside, the musician's brain. Ins- this is inside <laughs> my. This is all happening inside my brain. I'm trying to get it out through my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> so one aspect was let's create really fun music that we're really psyched on, and the other part was uh, how are we going to succeed as a band? And we took models of bands that. W- did the the same similar things before us and succeeded. We never expected to have a hit song, you know? So it's like, well, how do these bands that don't have hit songs, uh, create a good fan base. And so of course we looked at the dead and we looked at fish for that kind of a model for our touring model. Yeah. Musically we're driving around. Maybe we have bussy at this point we got in, 98 maybe
1: Busy is was
0: your touring vehicle. It was our touring vehicle <laughs> it was a crested butte uh uh transit bus That's right. that we bought from from the ski area and uh and t- took the seats out and and uh made bunks and and a couch area and turned it into a touring bus which was not very expensive and it got us out of those uh those terrible passenger vans that can crush a band.
1: Oh, I, I know them well. I know them well.
0: <laughs> so, so we want. We know we have to cover a lot of regions touring, and at the same time, we're listening. We've got the music that we're playing, and we're listening to ARU, and we're listening to uh, Del McCoury and we're listening to, uh, Latin jazz bands and we're, uh, sure. You know, listening to all the uh, hot rise. And-
1: ARU by the way, aquarium rescue unit, one of the most legendary, I guess, jam band or just a, a breeding ground for amazing musicians. Colonel Bruce Hampton, O'Teal, Matt Mundy, Jimmy Herring, right. um, Really influential on, it seems like, everyone who's out there doing anything it, that's related to jam music. It was music just,
0: is. it was, yeah, it was the right combination of, of different kinds of music, you know. There was blues, there was some incredible musicianship, you know, with Matt Mundy and Jimmy Herring. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, and there was just... In crazy, incredible lyrics by Colonel Bruce, who was just channeling. Oh yeah, you know, channeling some some higher power. He was and, and, one in
1: a zillion. That guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that band had a, a lot of influence on us. And New Grass Revival. You know, we had the the Telluride Sessions. Oh yeah. Which, if you haven't heard that, that is a stellar recording of some incredible compositions with Edgar Meyer on the bass and Sam Bush on the mandolin, Bela Fleck on the banjo, uh, Stuart Duncan on the fiddle. Oh, Mark O'Connor. Mark Mark O'Connor. On on violin and guitar. I think, yeah. When they played live, sometimes there would be both of them or one or the other. But yeah, Mark O'Connor wrote some of those tunes and played not just the fiddle, Guitar, of course he's won slopes. he's won all uh you know every kind con- instrument contest on every different instrument that you can mandolin band, uh uh mandolin guitar fiddle Yeah. I'm not sure what else but yeah um yeah so that that album was was one of our top ones and it got us into this point where that's the new normal bluegrass for us now, yeah. you know. Yeah, we love Dell and 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 Tim O'Brien and 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 all these bands, you know, Ricky Skaggs. But then there is also this different kind of thing, mm-hmm. and not everybody in the band had bluegrass roots, you know. Right. Like Travis is a Latin percussionist, right? When when he joined, you know, and. Um, But you guys had... You know, so we wanted to play that bluegrass, but we got to make it work for everybody in the band, too, so it becomes something different. Right, which has been
1: a theme for String Cheese over the years, how to incorporate all these different influences. But as far as the sort of the vision of what the band could be, you were looking at Fish and the Dead and sort of these grassroots fan base models from really early on, and that came to be a thing that has really defined you guys just the way that you treat your fans, the way that you interact with your fans, and it seems like that that was sort of baked into what cheese is from very early on.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, because you start out... What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history, that's a lot of music and a lot of stories.
1: I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking...
0: I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
1: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. We can't thank you enough for the
0: support. Now back to the show. With the concept of okay, how did how did those bands uh, become successful? And it was by playing a lot of shows, going to a lot of regions, trying to make each show sound as good as possible. When we toured in the beginning, we would carry a small PA with us and we'd go into a club that had a crappy uh, sound system and we'd take it down and put ours up. This is when we were playing, it could be 150 people in the room. But that was was an
1: important thing that was going on in addition to the music evolving and coming into all these new zones. Technology, PA systems, lighting rigs were all getting significantly better at this time. And right. You guys actually carried your own PA from from early yeah, on. Yeah, we
0: did. We had a, a, a trailer that we we had uh, behind Bussy, and we would have uh, a little a small Meyer P, uh, sound system with us. So so a lot of times, if we didn't like the way the room this the the sound system looked, you know, it was John O'Leary back then, and and. He would say, OK, we're taking it down and we're putting ours up and the clubs would hate us and the people would come in and they would say that I've never heard this room sound that good. You know, so we're trying to we understand that these are our customers in yep. effect and the customer needs to leave the uh, the show happy. Yeah. And we're sure. trying to do uh, things to do that. So we would travel so that was part. That was a big part of how we started with the model from, you know, the dead and fish, you know. And the other part was, hey, we're gonna we we're gonna do a run on the west coast, say wherever it may be. Um, the same, this group, same group of people is gonna go to all of these shows. You know, there's at least a couple of dozen people that are on tour or maybe more you know and then the people that live in the in the region but for these people we want to play a different we want to keep changing the shows up we can't just like play the same set list and or even the same songs in different orders you know we have to make sure that the that what we're playing each night is unique uh, what we called the incident, you know, mm-hmm. each incident is unique and and onto itself in each town that we played, and they'll be remembered by people as, you know, that show in, uh, you know, up in Humble was different than that show they played in Chico or whatever, it, right? You know, right. And again, just trying to keep things interested, interesting for everybody involved. What
1: about? the sort of mainstream music thing, you know, did you, did you ever potentially have a big record deal or have the goal of getting radio play or was that ruled out from, from pretty
0: early on? I don't think we ruled it out, but other people may, (laughs) may have, uh, when we, got to the point where we had our feet underneath of us and we had a regular touring thing going. We had some regions that we had uh, um, succeeded in and had, had uh, people coming out and we had some regions that were harder to crack. Um, but we were, we were like, okay, we've been touring for a couple of years now pretty hard and um, you know, what about the records you know we we uh could maybe get a bunch of money for for a record deal and then be on a label and make some money selling records so we said well let's let's talk to some people about their record deals and different record labels and how they were how how they went for the bands. I remember a couple of specific things. I remember talking with Leftover Salmon. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they had a record deal going. They put out a couple of really good uh, records. Uh, um, I forget which the label was right off the top of my head. But they, they had a negative experience with it. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to Butch Trucks. About uh, the Allman Brothers. Sure. Hey, Capricorn, man, they put out a lot of really good records. Right. How much money are you making? Did you really, you know, how'd you do off all those, all those record deals? Yeah, what deals? did he and say? He said, I haven't made a dollar off any of that. Really? Yeah. Well, it hasn't
1: hurt you guys any. I'll say that. So,
0: <laughs> like, at that point, then we're like, okay, well, this you know, we talked to a bunch of other bands that were... You know, at least at our level or maybe, you know, had had been had some more success at that point, you know, and and uh, really didn't have any good good record label stories told to us at yeah. all. Yeah. So um, that's when we decided that we um, maybe we should just have our own record label, own our own masters and uh, sell it in, you know, with our own company. And we yeah. created it. Created uh, Psy Fidelity records.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said, it it's interesting because it, it hasn't hurt you guys at all. You know, you've, you've become a juggernaut in the jam world despite not necessarily being able to tap into the commercial success. I think when people launch right. into a career in music, well, the game has really changed a lot these days, and it's much more DIY, and there are a lot more players in the game. The barrier to entry is a lot lower but this was all going down when people were still buying cds and yeah it was on the cusp of the
0: fall of the record companies right right you know we were right on the cusp and luckily we were uh we got enough good advice and we were smart enough to uh to go with the more modern model which is do it in-house create your own music and uh Really, one of the most successful things of our for our record label has been the live CDs, on the road yeah. CDs. Every night we record um, off the board, a combination of off the board and, uh, and an audience, the audience mics, and we create a matrix and uh, do a quick uh, a quick mastering. of of the music and each each night is for sale on as an on the road uh cd or download yeah you know and uh that's really where we the record company has made the most money
1: yeah and you guys probably stream all your shows as well
0: we stream a lot of our shows now i don't think every single one but most of the most of the major shows right are streamed yeah
1: And it it makes a lot of sense that even back in the day when the record industry was it hadn't completely fallen apart like it like it has now, but you guys had this whole other thing going on. You know, you Mm -hmm. weren't like some up and coming act that was looking for a lottery ticket record deal. Like you guys were out there playing shows, you had fans, you you had a thing, and I think part of that decision comes down to, you know, we're not looking to sacrifice something that someone else needs to have a part of it's like cheese is already going and you guys knew what it was. And, and, and so that kind of evolved into creating SCI Fidelity and now you guys have the, the, um, the SCI sound lab going.
0: And now we have the sound lab. We, uh, uh, bought a building out from a friend of ours out, out here in the, um, Denver area somewhere. (laughs) and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, uh it, it's like a, a building that was it's a big building four thousand five hundred square feet but and it's like half of it is warehouse space and half of it is uh recording studio which we've you know invested a little bit into to really uh have a have a a good control room and and do do some some things uh, to to get the sound better in there and uh, wire the place. So that, store a
1: lot of your touring gear there as well, right?
0: It, yeah. So so we have merchandise and touring gear right. and all our stuff. Everything is under one roof right now. Mm-hmm. Which it never it used to be. We had a building to practice in, we had a building to keep our merchandise in, we had, you know, all these different things that we were renting, and none of them were really, you know, great for any of the things that we needed. Um, But it's also a full-on recording studio. So it's full-on recording studio, and and when we get together and rehearse, um, we are... uh, you know all 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 we have to do is press a button we have truce our our sound man um is our engineer and anytime we have an idea that we want to get down, everything is wired, and all we have to do is uh get the signal going and press the button and and we can record and it makes us have the the ability to say this song right here is ready to go, and this is a great idea. Let's put down the the basic tracks on this, and we can work on it later today, this week, or we can put it in the can and do overdubs on it later. Right. And then, hey, this song that we, uh, that we recorded two weeks ago is ready to be mixed, or it might need a track or two. But there's this flow going, and... And and then another song is just being mastered now, and we're checking it to see if it's good. And it's good. Okay, we're going to release that later this later this week. So you won't necessarily wait
1: until you have a whole record of tunes. You can just we've been we've been checking it out.
0: You know, we made a lot of albums. You know, the 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 uh, the usual way. and now we've been checking out, releasing one song at a time. We have um, a song coming up that's going to be released this week. That uh, I wrote with Jim Lauderdale. Oh, cool! Stories for Another Day. Awesome, love Jim. And then Jim flew into into Colorado and oh, came over to the lab. Cool. And and the band and Jim, we all got together and we cut the song and and now we're re- ready to release it. Yeah. You know, so we're doing things, yeah, one song at a time, boom, pop it out there. And then maybe at the end we can uh, make a collection, an album of a group of songs that we've released that aren't on an album. Yeah. It's cool. It's like
1: one more way that you guys can just be essentially directly in touch with your fans. Make every Mm -hmm. decision about, Mm -hmm. okay, here's a new song. We want to record it. We don't necessarily want to wait for a complete album of songs. We just want to get this thing out there and, you know, it's more music for them to check out.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, throwing, throwing them bone here and bone there and then, you know, we put the song out. They're like, oh, hey, I may if we go to the show, maybe we'll get to hear them play, debut the song. You know, well, we're trying it that way uh, right now and it's been great. The best part about it, uh, which is good for us and the fans, is that we've put out probably 14 new songs in the last year or so. Yeah. And so our set lists, we have a lot of songs to pull from available to us. We can do six or seven nights sure in a row without repeating a song and sure. feel like the set lists are, are strong. I'm not attached to having to play seven nights of music in a row without repeating a song. Are
1: some guys in the band? Yes. And how do you guys work through something like that? It's obviously a compromise. We went
0: out on on a tour recently and we played seven nights without repeating songs, but some of us in the band felt like hey, this could be stronger if we played some of the things that we're really up on right now instead of peppering in a lot of these nuggets that we haven't played for a while. Right. It's the value of
1: changing it up every night versus the value of playing material that maybe you think is stronger. That could make
0: for a stronger show, you know. But um, at that point, when we started going back and forth about it a little bit, it was the seventh night and... I said, you know, let's ride it out. Let's play, you know, not repeat. We're here at the seventh night. Sure. And you're talking about maybe repeating one song or two songs. Let's just play it right. out. And um, So we did that, you know. But then when that comes up again, we need, we're still in the air about which is the way to go about it. Now, if you take that one fan or you take that group of fans that have been to 100 plus shows some of them even more than that you know some of them 300 shows god knows what's going on with that but, <laughs> um, and you I don't know if you want to get inside their brain inside the fans brain that's a whole that'll be your podcast <laughs> good luck <laughs> But then, you know, when you do something like that, they're the ones that'll say, Damn. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That yeah. was, was I was at all those shows and they never repeated a song the whole time. Where yeah. where does that come from? Well, Fish did that too. Yeah. Fish does oh, that yeah. too. So, you know, we can't say that we're not too proud to see somebody doing something interesting right. another band doing something interesting and saying hey and we've always been like that yeah. you know if you know we see musicians whether it's the music playing or what they're doing on tour you know if that seems like well that's that's really cool we might try it out you know
1: yeah well yeah you know that you know the super fans appreciate it yeah. even
0: if they're not there
1: sometimes you know
0: and that's a yeah, reality
1: right. of the of the music world that we're a part of today is every time you guys play a show, it's so much more than just the people in the room. It's people streaming. Even if they don't stream, they look at the set list and you guys do live recordings and you, you play off this sort of new and noteworthy when you do something like that, no repeats over seven nights. Mm -hmm. It's a thing in in this world that gets people's attention. But I want to kind of, I want to shift gears for a second, just talk a little bit about the, musical progression of string cheese because you guys are such an incredible and eclectic brew of all these different influences you know one night you have david grisman sitting in the next night you have skrillex sitting in at electric forest and i think you're probably the only band that can that can claim that by the way mm. um and <laughs> it's interesting you know you guys um if you ask me i i think you essentially started out as a bluegrass band, certainly derivative bluegrass bluegrass instruments, mm-hmm. and I can remember the first time I heard "Cheese Born on the Wrong Planet." I was I was living <laughs> um, I was living on for the summer on Nantucket Island, working at a grocery store, just learning banjo. And I was over at my buddy John's house, and they were blasting "Born on the Wrong Planet," and there was a, someone there who I had been jamming with. I had my banjo out, and I was playing along. Music was cranking. Next thing you know, we, look, we turn around, two police officers standing in the room with us on the second floor of this condo, and there's like a six-foot graphics bong <laughs> sitting out with the big
0: alien head at the base, and I mean, the cop rolls They're over the stereo, turns... Witnessing a cultural event. <laughs> that's right, that's right. They, were they dancing? They were not
1: they dancing. Were not they dancing. were not amused. <laughs> they, 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 one of the cops rolls over, turns the stereo down... And, um, that night kind of went down in infamy, but I remember these, (laughs) these, these were the, these were my, this was my first time that I'd been exposed to string cheese and, um, it was great. I loved it. It was, you know, you guys were so innovative at the time and these days, this jam grass scene is just thriving. It's, it's, it's incredible Mm -hmm. what all has come after that. But, um, I'm curious to know, like, when did, you know, these days you guys have electronic elements and um, you know, you you obviously added Jason and there's so much going on musically. When when did those new influences start to come in? How
0: did they come in? And how do you guys work through incorporating all that stuff? It's, it's not new. It's not new. It's been the same thing that's been going on since we started playing. And Mike said, hey, you know, well, there was some original stuff that was you know different like i brought in say texas the song texas oh, yeah and i played it and it was kind of this jazz exercise thing that i had been doing quarterly and i wrote a story about my trip to new orleans jazz festival and put it to the music and when I brought it in, Trav was like, well, that's great. How about if we do it Latin? You know, so right there, it was like, okay, Trav's knows how to play Latin percussion. And he hears something in this. And Mike knows how to play jazz, which is kind of a little bit of the flavor and Latin. So it became a string cheese song that way because of people's influences. And Mike says, hey, let's play this song Opera Vav, you know, which is a jazz standard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't know how to play jazz, Mike. He said, well, you're going to learn. I like it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so there's the beginning of it. And now, you know, it's always been like that. Kyle brings in a song that's, you know, like a Radiohead song. And uh, it's like, well, how do we do this? You know, well, we're going to figure out. Let's listen to some music, you know, and figure out how to make it work. How does other bands make it work? How do Radiohead make it work? You know, um, so you just you, you take each song and you just let that song
1: be your guide. And then you guys pull from what you know as individuals and you say, okay, Texas has got this Latin vibe and certain guys have got a handle on that and and that sort of guides the evolution.
0: So say there's this song, Star of Munster. Okay, it's an old Celtic fiddle tune that I learned how to play. And... So I play it for the band, and the band is like, oh, okay. Uh, And Jason says, well, you know, that sounds like Bollywood music, you know? And I'm like, what the hell is Bollywood music? (laughs) You know? And... He says, well, it's this kind of like Indian electronic thing that's going on. And he plays some of it and he and then it's like, "Okay, let's take this melody and make it into this electronic thing. And the thing is, you know, it's like writing music with people or playing music, even sitting down and playing, picking a few tunes with people. When you start saying no or saying, I don't know how to do that or, you know, then it's like a non-starter. Yeah. You know, when you write with somebody, you have to be always more leaning toward the yes side or let's check it outside, yeah. you know. Especially um, if
1: you're on a quest as a band like you guys are, I know like we are um, to some extent as well, to satisfy everyone with the music. Right. Let everyone have the... And the minute right. you start saying no and you yeah. start closing doors, you sort of set a precedent that's can be hard to undo.
0: And that's like, you know, if Jason had said hey, this sounds like Bollywood music, you know? Uh, And I said, well, it's not. You know, it's bluegrass, Jason. (laughs) You know, if I had gone that route, it just shut down Jason. You know, it it negates his energy that he can be giving to the band. And it's really kind of lame. So, you know... I'm like, okay, let's check it out, you know. And everybody had idea. All of a sudden, everybody has ideas. Yep. You know, let's do this. Let's do that. You know, cultivate and that yes it energy. Make all of a sudden something good happens. You know, and we have a song now that's a regular part of our uh, repertoire, and it's a the blue. Bali it's monster. like a, a the Bali monster, and it's it's a Celtic irish fiddle tune that could be bluegrass song is played as a bluegrass song by a lot of bands but now since we have all these different influences in the band it became something totally different and that's been the precedent since the beginning of the band and to right now and you know and it you know it it makes everybody feel like they're incorporated it makes everybody feel like they're adding to what's going on yeah that's like that's a great when you get on stage everybody's feeling like i'm an important part of this band i contribute to this band on a lot of levels yeah and that's the kind of vibe that you want
1: yeah it's a great approach to more than just a band any any group endeavor you know if you cultivate that right. yes energy and then and then people know that they have an outlet for whatever it is that's original to their voice i'm going to hit pause right there on my conversation with billy i really love what he's getting into in that last part about bringing the yes energy and a spirit of open-mindedness to any collaboration effort. And that can really be extrapolated out well beyond the realms of music and playing in a band. Just a great life lesson right there. And there's so much more great stuff from that interview. I'll be airing part two of that later in this season of inside the musician's brain. I'm going to get back to my bi-weekly Tuesday release schedule starting early in 2020. So Keep your eyes peeled for Episode 6, which features my interview with the incredibly cool and unique Holly Bowling from the band Ghostlight. She had a million cool things to say. I learned a ton from that one. Real quick reminder that Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Check out Osiris. It is a trove of great music and culture podcasts. I'm sure you'll dig. All right, guys, thanks so much again for listening. I'm signing off for now, but we will be back in a few weeks with the next installment of Inside the Musician's Brain.
0: This is the story of Kurt Cobain.
1: Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince.
0: It's a new podcast series.
1: About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after.
0: It's like nothing you've ever heard before.
1: It's storytelling.
0: But it's more than that, because rock stars...
1: They tell us how we feel.
0: They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear.